Instrumentation is something that, as an industry, we have no idea how to do it. We have no standards. If you still have to go SSH somewhere and that tail a log file to figure something out, there's such a gap in product features that could address this. It would be really great if the people who are managing those servers for you were able to see what you wanted to see, if they were looking for the things that you want to look for. That's a hard problem, though. As a managed service, you're trying to solve the general problem, and as a specific application, you're trying to look for things that only you know about. Hi, I'm Liz Fong Jones. And I'm Charity Majors. And you're listening to Observability Cast, a monthly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. Ollicast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at Ollicast. That's O-11-Y-C-A-S-T, Ollicast. Serverless is not actually new. That's a hypothesis that I have, that serverless has been around since Google App Engine. But what is serverless then? I would define serverless as using a managed service for every part of your stack, which is not exactly... Every part? Mm. What if you just use it for like offloading like index jobs or something? Then you're partly serverless. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can be somewhat serverless. Or you can so be totally serverless, serverless is a spectrum, like being... Like uh, gender. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. I think that serverless has a bad name for people that are all in on serverless and they become ideological about that. I don't think you have to do that. You can ease into serverless. Also, it's the worst name in the world ever. Because it's not serverless. There are servers there. There's servers somewhere. Always. You can't see them, though. I, I would rather cope like an ops with, person. <laughs> I would rather cope with serverless than opsless or no oh ops. God. No ops pisses me off. Well, as long as we can have no devs, I'm cool with it. I'm down for no devs. <laughs> I can't say that. <laughs> that seems like a great time to introduce yourselves. I'm Rachel. I work at Google before that. I started a company called Absolutely, and before that, I worked at GitHub, and before that, I worked at ModCloth. I'm Emily. I manage the engineering and design teams at Honeycomb, but more important than that for this conversation, Rachel and I used to co-speak together about WebPerf back in the day, so Ooh. that is the thing that formed this bond between us. And how did you two wind up speaking about WebPerf together? Because we were doing it wrong, and then we started trying to do it better, and then we started telling people about that transition. Shared sense of anger. For me, it was more like a confession. Like, let me tell you about this ridiculous thing I did. Mm -hmm. We have different approaches to speaking. So I think that the best talks are uh, disasters. And she thinks that you should always end with like something positive or something uplifting or like a good takeaway. And I'm very content to just leave people in false confidence, false hope. <laughs> <laughs> like here's a here like so we'll we'll tell a disaster, and then she's like, here's a tool that solves this problem if you want to pay that much money or something like that. <laughs> I I'm happy to just like leave them in uh, in a pit of despair. Yeah, cool. that explains so well how we got to where we are now. <laughs> <laughs> so if you have no servers or if you're serverless, does that mean that you don't need to monitor or observe? No. Can you make it somebody else's problem? It would be really great if the people who are managing those servers for you were able to see what you wanted to see, if they were looking for the things that you mm. want to look for. That's a hard problem, though. So it's hard. As a managed service, you're trying to solve the general problem, and as a specific application, you're trying to look for things that only you know about your application. So that's why I think it's kind of hard to have the generalized solution to, like, Observability. That's kind for, of a trick question. Nobody can own your service for you. Like only you know what you're looking for. Every app is specific. 
you can offload components to other people, I think, people who are specializing in those components, but you cannot offload ownership. The other thing that I think is interesting about that is everyone has their own view of the world. And you, by necessity, no matter how much you outsource, you have to keep the interactions between all the different components and the glue between all the different components in your head and understand how things flow. That makes a lot of sense. So how do we increase the amount of observability kind of across that gulf between like your vendor that you've outsourced a thing to and your own code and you? Right now, it's a really hard problem. So right now, I feel like this is a point where we could like wax philosophical about how software tends to develop where like we have many different solutions and then we find out what's right and we kind of like hone in on that one. And, and it eventually becomes a commodity and then you move on to the next one. Exactly. Then we have to like, like something else blooms. Mm-hmm. Serverless right now is in like the many different varieties phase. And so there's not like a one way to like plug into things. Every like serverless component is operating a little bit differently, has different like quirks and different places where you could plug in. So how do you do this is like a very one-off answer. Like it, it depends what you're doing. It's a lot like the clouds were like 10 years ago. Exactly. Emily, you're so quiet. The troll question that I've been sitting on is, what do you tell people when they're like, how do I observe Firebase? Uh, you know, as a vendor, what do you say? Yeah, I tell them it's uh, it's a great question that they're asking the right questions and they're worried about the right things. There's not like a hit this button to observe, right? Like that's not a button. What you can do is like your functions are allowed to call out to things, right? So you can start putting things in there. It depends what function provider you're using. I'm biased towards the one I work for, but you know, everyone can like choose their own functions provider. They all have a way for you to um, like either you could you can either do retries on your own or retries are built in. So thinking about like how you want it to retry, if you want to report your retries versus just like keep trying for a while, right? It's kind of nice to know when the retries start in case they're all retrying eventually, because you could have like a cascading failure of like. So we started these retries, and then the service came up and it was right, brought right back down because all of the, all retries, the retries had like queued up. This yep, is getting, the giant thundering herd. This is giving yeah. so many flashbacks to Parse, you know. And in the beginning, we told everybody like that Parse is the best way to build mobile apps. You don't have to worry about the back end. You don't have to bother your pretty little heads about it. Just use our SDKs. And How like, do they like being condescended to? You like oh, that? fabulous! They okay. love it. Absolutely. <laughs> I giggle when I condescend, and so nobody notices. And for a long time, that was true, right? It's for hobbyists. It's for people who are, you know, bootstrapping. And for a long time, you don't have to understand your data model or the underlying storage or the query planner or all these other things. But then you get featured on the front page of the iTunes store, and suddenly you do. And it's the worst possible time. And we give you no insight into it. And you're like, Pars, what the fuck is happening under the covers on my fucking app? You know, and we're like, well, funnily, you're doing a full table scan times three over here, which you couldn't have known because it, it was fast using, enough earlier. You're, you're using an API, right? How are you going to know how that translates into our query planner, much less how MongoDB is going to do under the covers, much less all of the people who are sharing a lock with you on that single database? Mm. Mm. So it's kind of the multi-tenancy problem where you as a single tenant don't have the right to poke around in what's going on in yeah. your peers, and yet you kind of need to at least have an understanding. So it kind of brings us to the question of how to measure what's going on on a service you don't necessarily mm-hmm. have telemetry on, right? Like, can you just start a trace span before you call out to someone else? 
I've been telling people like for developers who are asking, how do we instrument? Because I feel like instrumentation is something as an industry, we have no idea how to do it. We have no standards. There's no consistency. There are a few different schools of thought. If you happen to be lucky enough to work with a good senior dev when you're early in your career, you might know how, otherwise you're fucked. Uh, But I feel like the best advice that you can give people is imagine you're a serverless developer. Now instrument your code that way Hmm. because you should not have to ideal world, whatever, you should not have to care about CPU load average, read, you know, memory that's buffered in versus page to disk. You should only have to care about can your code execute from end to end successfully or not. And if it can't, you should have alternatives that you can do. Hmm. You should have some way to like call out and say like there's a problem here. Like let me dump what I have so you can like debug this later or something. You should have a, a plan for what happens when your request doesn't succeed. And I think the other thing that I saw when I used to work at the same company as you, Rachel, is like the notion of support needs to have the same view as the customer does, right? Like even if the customer can't see into the vendor's solution, you still need to be able to say, okay, that request from that customer, they're passing me a trace ID. What does that trace ID look like inside of my system, right? So you're not scrambling around trying to reproduce the behavior. IDs are the little magical things that knit all systems together. And so if you expose them to your customers, maybe they can get something sensible out. Liz, I love that world that you live in where this is a support problem and not an engineering problem. Tell me how to live in that world. (laughs) I think that it inevitably happens at a certain scale and size where you cannot have every customer request being routed to a product development engineer. So I often talk and think about this as observability has a way of making so many problems, support problems, not engineering problems. Because instead of having to use your creative brain and just like, I don't know what's going on, I'm going to go spelunking, open it. Because anytime it's engineering, it's kind of an open-ended question because you don't know yet. It's a new problem. And the definition of that versus a support problem is it's bounded. It's repeatable. It's repeatable. You can give someone a playbook or a recipe and they can do it. And I feel like with observability... Like, well, when we were debugging parse, it could take hours or days to debug some of these problems. And with observability, it was like seconds or minutes, so it was repeatable and it felt like a support problem. Even if it was a new problem every time, right? It's the standardizing, how do we answer new questions, right? Mm. It's not that there's fewer kinds of questions coming in, it's the time to resolve and the complexity of those questions. The practice, the approach, the the mental model of bisecting or taking one small step and looking at the answer. You You can't tell people which steps they're going to need to take, but you can give them the process and they can always debug. What about the process of looking at your log files? That's a great question. What do we think about logs? I think that logs are a great fallback, and I think we should log things. Logs are a great fallback with such a diplomatic way of saying saying something rude about logs. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to remember that. You don't have to be polite here. What do you want to say about logs? (laughs) The reason I ask that rhetorical question is that I'm with you, Rachel. I think that logs are great if you use them only for what they're intended for. That logs are great. What do you think about structured versus unstructured? I think that sometimes you really just need to throw a printf debug in there, right? Sure, if you're a developer who's actively debugging something and you're looking at it on your screen. Yeah, but my point is that you can still do that in production as long as you're not trying to index all of that crap, right? If you're just putting it somewhere and if if you need it, it's there, and if you don't need it, then you know just it rots and gets expired in a day. Spoken like someone who's used to having a very large budget. That's true, it is. It is. So I'm pro-structured logs. I think they're great. It lets you search everything that you need to find really quickly. You can always derive unstructured from structured, and the reverse is not true. 
Right. So I, the reason when I say I hate logs, um, I think that there are a lot of assumptions that are bundled with the term log. You hear logs, you think strings, you think unstructured, you think emitted just like random intervals throughout the code path whenever somebody was like, oh, I'm going to print something out here, you know, and none of those are necessarily true. You can log in a way that's structured, that's predictable, that's, you know, like the way we do it. You initialize a honeycomb event at the beginning of the request in the service. You pre-populate it with a bunch of stuff. You stuff more stuff in as it's executing. And then at the end, before it's erroring or exiting, you ship it off in a single wide block. You're describing a structured event, not a structured log, Yeah, right? it reminds me a lot of event-driven programming. What I call events. But I got a lot of people yelling at me, that's just structured logging. And I'm like, yes, but the assumptions that you have for logs are the opposite of everything that we do, which is why we call them events. Wait, what do you mean it's the opposite? Oh, like, what do you mean? Logging traditionally is str- strings, unstructured, emitted, like at various points, and, and not wide, not many nouns. Like, like what we're putting of- in production is like that? What? Like what we're putting out, like logging from our production apps oh, is like I'm that? Just, I'm just talking about in general, yes, people log that way. That's the historical, like most logs look like that. Right, but when most people think of, when you tell them to structure their logs, what they're going to do is they're going to put a JSON shim around <laughs> it, but they're going to still emit, emit multiple per request, right? Yes, which but is I, terrible. I, I think here's the compelling argument for... Why sometimes, even if it's just, okay, fine, I threw a little JSON on it, but I'm still omitting it bits here, bits there. Here's why I think it's valuable. If you're trying to understand kind of conflicts between different things happening in different threads on the same machine or same process, you kind of have to look at, you know, not just the events when they finish, but you have to look at what else was going on immediately, like above and below, right? Not even if it was in a different request. I would argue that that's a job for a debugger. That the job of um, structured logs or events and observability is helping you find where in your system is the code that you need to debug and giving you enough of the context that you can feed that into your local debugging instance and recreate it. Mm. But you can't necessarily recreate everything. If it's a scale, then you can't log enough to give you that context, almost certainly. The advantage of scale, though, is that if you have something running on a machine, right, you can probably keep, you know, a say one gigabyte log on your lo- that just that just is a is an open buffer, right? It's a, it's That's a ring buffer, true, right? And it probably gets written over every two or three minutes. Yeah. So wait, I have a question for both of you because you, Charity, you don't think that like no one should ever log. That's not the position you're taking. No, of course not. So I want to hear, like, what are the necessary and sufficient conditions for when to log and how to log or whatever? Like, what is a good log? What does a good log look like in both of your heads? And maybe, Emily, you have opinions about this too. It's just that you're not out there with your dagger, so we don't know. Oh, I'm Switzerland in the Go logging wars. I'm setting this one to listen charity. <laughs> so I, I feel like, uh, oh, another assumption that people usually mean when they mean logs is, is logging to local disk, which again, there are lots of problems with that. You don't generally want to log to the same disk as you're running your application on because it'll fill up, it'll have contention. If you're running at scale, again, these are big problems. And it tends to impact you at the absolute worst times when you're already at peak capacity or there's some other problem. That's when your log is also going to overflow and, and, and compound your problems. So I think that the best telemetry sent from an application doesn't get buffered to disk locally. Oh, I'm I'm with you there, right? Like I think that the magic of telemetry and the magic of observability is figuring out where you need to poke around more. Yes. And I think that maybe what we're differing on, Charity, is what our definition of poking around more is. 
because for me in my past life as an SRE, I spent a lot of time where my poking around was not necessarily spinning up a copy of the same binary and trying to recreate the conditions on my own disk. But instead, you know, my service was on fire. I was trying to figure out, like, you know, what do I need to drain? What do I need to whack? I and, have and exactly the same pa- background and past, and I just feel like it's deprecated. <laughs> I feel like there are generally she giggled. better That ways. means she was being... <laughs> being serious, yes. <laughs> yeah. No, I hear you. Look... I would never take away anyone's S-trace. I would never let anyone take away my S-trace. But I feel a little ashamed and dirty inside every time I drag my S-trace out. Oh, yes. And you should absolutely feel ashamed and dirty, but at the same time... That's like, how it's, I feel about logging, too. Yeah, and it's, so it's a useful tool, though. I think we're it's, violently agreeing. Yeah, we're actually violently it's agreeing. It's very useful, but it's not something that I want to lead out and say, hey, kids, <laughs> do this, lean on this, because it should be like your last line of defense, because it is unreliable. It is often harmful, if, and if you lean on it you will send people astray. Uh, you should have people leaning on getting the telemetry out into a place where it's shared state, where everyone can poke around, debug it, and look for patterns across many instances. But worst case scenario, you've got to have these in your back pocket. Yep, yep, worst case scenario. And I think that that's the generalization, right? People make this something that because it's useful to look at one machine, yes. they must be able to correlate it across yes. multiple machines. And I think that's where that falls apart, yes, right? exactly. You use your structured events. Yes. You use your metrics. You use your traces to figure out how do, where do I look? The entire notion of a process running and doing something is kind of deprecated. I mean, conceptually, you don't want people thinking about, you know, logging into a machine, you know, restarting that binary. Yes, you sometimes have to do this, but you want people to be thinking about how do you manage a service as a group, as a whole, right? Because there are so many patterns that you will only see when you're zooming out and you're looking at, you're looking at it from a much wider lens. Hmm. Which is kind of, I guess, the appeal of serverless in a way. Nice. Well done. Brought it back around. Wait, before we leave logging, I have one question. You're so, determined to start a fight here. I'm not. I want to get the conclusion. I want okay. to get the takeaway. Mm-hmm. So, like, say I I feel like I should be logging. What do you want me to know? Like, how should I be logging well? Uh, what I, like what kind of things should I be logging and what kind of content should I be? Whatever you on? have to to debug whatever terrible thing you can't get any other way. And so you're just like temporarily putting it in there. So, example, you can't get at it through a debugger because whatever reason you don't know why but you can't seem to trip it in a debugger. Okay, sure, add some logging, put it back in prod and watch it like a hawk and see if you can find it around whatever it is that you suspect might be the problem and rinse and repeat. But that is a legit last ditch. Liz, do you agree? I disagree. I think that the place where local logs are helpful is for chronological analysis of co-tenancy issues. And that was my bread and butter for 10 years at Google was was co-tenancy issues where you have, you know, the one request that's slow is not actually the the request that's tripping it. For me too at parse, but logs were not useful to me. Mm, logs were very useful, I think, because we were very thoughtful about putting, you know, hey, I'm spending time working on this request. Uh, oh, hey, wait, it's been there for 10, 20, 30 seconds, right? So you can see, you know, here's the request that got me here to begin with, right? Like I, I found that through my centralized telemetry. But now I'm looking at what else was happening on that machine around the same time. So I think the reason that you had that experience and I didn't is because almost all of my co-tenancy problems took place in MongoDB. 
Ah, yeah. So at the application layer, I wouldn't have been able to detect that at all because they were all just waiting on the database and you couldn't see what actually was happening. Yeah, whereas I was operating the database. I was operating yes. Bigtable. Well, I was operating the database too, but I didn't have the ability to add the right kind of log lines to this that would have shown those. Yeah, whereas I had those log lines, and yeah. therefore I'm seeing from my experience of writing those log lines. Okay, so it turns out that we are in fact in, in violent agreement, and that in Charity's case, she wasn't able to get useful logs, and therefore she... We might or might not have a couple of times forked the MongoDB source code and inserted some log lines, but if we do, but we were absolutely not allowed to do that as a, as a licensing matter, and so we probably didn't ever do that. Mm. <laughs> what do you think about that? Oh, this is so fun to me, because what I see here is that there's a missing visualization. Like, if you still have to go... SSH somewhere and then like you know tail a log file to figure something out. Yes. There's a, there's such a gap Something's in tooling missing. right here, and this is like, oh, I'm already thinking about product features that can address this. This is what I want people to take away from this. Anytime you have to SSH into a box or something, it's not that you were bad or you did bad things. You did what you had to do, but it means that there was something missing, and you should try and solve that so the next person doesn't have to repeat that. Do you mean something in your automation? Something in your tooling? Something in your tooling that you're using to understand what's happening. SSH is like the break in case of emergency. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. We solved it. We fixed it. <laughs> no, it just became a, a ticket in my backlog. <laughs> it's about to become a feature. Yeah. Or I'm going to plug these lovely folks on the on the podcast. Um, if you found this conversation interesting, go look at tailscale.io. Tails as in T-A-I-L, not T-A-L-E. What they do is they kind of are your last line of defense in a way that's slightly less shitty than writing to local disk. Distributed tail-f. Yeah, effectively. Yeah. yeah. Cool. This is a great question that I think Rachel had. What are the interesting new infrastructure and tooling companies and products? What are they building and why is it cool? Yeah, that is a question I have. I, I like collecting these companies, but I figure y'all live in the and breathe this. So tell me. Well, one of my favorites, of course, is LaunchDarkly. And I just I was tweeting the other day about that awesome little uh, poor man's uh, observability that you can get with just feature flags and logging to tie all the conversation threads together. Basically, you instrument your code in such a way that you can flip on and off very detailed logging around snippets of code using feature flags without having to redeploy or do anything except for like flip the flags. And I was just like, mind that's blown. such a cool use of launch so darkly. Mind blown. Yeah. Wow. It's not customer facing at all. It's just for you. It's that's just for great. you. Yeah. I love it. It's the first time people have often gotten on my case about, well, you're just defining observability to mean what Honeycomb does, which is backwards. We first like thought about observability and what needed to happen, and then we built Honeycomb to spec. But like I've been waiting for someone else to come up with an open source way of doing the same thing. And this is the first thing that I've seen. I'm like, yes, this lets you ask and answer any question about the internal state of your system without having to ship new code. And without paying a million dollars. And without paying a million dollars. I'll plug Firebase. We have a similar, well, we have A-B testing as a feature in Firebase. Well, I'll, just, I'll just throw that out there. Is that the same, though? Not exactly. Okay. It's a, a one-to-one. Cool. It's cool. Okay. I think the important thing is specification at runtime of which users or which servers you need in that set, right? Mm-hmm. Right. It's not just that you're running a randomized A-B-controlled t- trial, right? It's that you want control over where you're turning these things on. Or similarly, like right now, we're working on some dynamic sampling-related things at Honeycomb, and one of the things that is always on my mind is, how do we make it easy for someone to say, aha, I think that user might be in pain, let's go sample yeah. their stuff one for one, like yeah. temporarily. And then turn it back down. What are your thoughts and feelings on sampling? I think that sampling is a great way to avoid having to ingest a ton of data. Having to make hard choices. (laughs) (laughs) 
I don't know. I guess it depends how you sample. If you're sampling well, you can minimize the downside. If you're sampling poorly, then you're missing things. A lot of people in the industry tend to hear sampling, and the only thing that they hear is you're a very blunt instrument. Like you, you're taking one of 20 requests and just dropping the rest on the floor. It's the difference between, you know, clubbing someone with a rusty knife and actually using a scalpel, right? Yeah, to dig out, you know, the, their toothache or something. Like, well, <laughs> <laughs> this is so disturbing. Like, what, what is that? <laughs> but seriously, like, if you think about it, like, the majority of your traffic, you do not care about, except in aggregate. Errors, you always care about. So why not just sample heavily on the things that you know to be mostly boring? You care about their shape and the trajectory of the curve and some representative samples of them, but then take the things that you know are usually interesting, like any hits to the payments endpoint, or you know anything to do with money, or errors, or you know a user that it, you can't seem to capture weird behavior. And if you could just like dynamically turn that dial up and be like, can capture everything for this user for the next five minutes, then why would you ever want to keep everything all the time? Yeah, it's kind of interesting in that the world that I used to live in, Rachel lives in now, right, is the concept of, it turns out that histograms and heat maps align really, really closely with sampled event-driven observability, mm. right, in that at the end of the day, a histogram bucket is a count that represents some combination of events in a time window and, and some range of values. And you can choose to attach high cardinality values, and then suddenly it starts looking an awful lot like an event containing those high cardinality values with a sample rate on it, right? Like those, those are synonyms for each other. It's just a different way of getting there. I'm really glad that Emily works here now because when we were doing front-end performance talks, one of the lines that she would end with was, you always want a histogram when you're looking for a tool, just make sure they can mm. draw you a histogram. So I feel like I feel like you found your people. It seems good for you. That's upsetting because now I'm the person who goes, we don't have time to build that. <laughs> but you know, I do want them. I want more of them in Honeycomb for sure. What what would you like to see us build for browsers in terms of like a beeline for browsers? Like what is most needed that nobody seems to have yet? The sampling stuff for browsers is actually oh, super, super interesting. You know, you know what? We don't have to worry about building that anymore because open telemetry is doing both a server-side node and a client-side JavaScript uh, agent. The more often you tell me that I don't need to worry about this because open telemetry, the more dubious I get. Hmm, well? Which is not to say that you're wrong. But if you're collecting open telemetry, you still need to wait to like, do something with it, right? That's like a standard, right, for collecting the data? And then like, what do you do once you have it? So then it winds up being shipped off, you know, to anything from printing to standard out or sending it to Stackdriver or sending it to Honeycomb, right? Like, you know, the idea is the API for collecting the information is standardized and the collection is auto and the collection is similar to a beeline, right? Will yeah. automatically be done. So it just automatically says, Hey, here are the headers, here are the right, like here are the useful attributes, right? And and make sure to propagate the context. Yeah. I would love to believe. I love to think that it could be true because I hate doing this collection. I want to hear Emily's wish list. What was, what was the wish list going to be? Oh, I'm sampling that, for browsers. That was just, like the the idea of open telemetry and browsers was just like there's so much to dig into there. There's a whole 30 minutes right there because the best practices around collecting traces in the browser are so unclear right now. Like, you know, is a trace an entire page view? Is it a single request? And there's so many interesting tooling problems about how to best represent what the user is actually experiencing in that case. So it makes me so happy to know that other people will be thinking about it because I feel like these are like problems that keep me up at night in my like lonely cell and now there will be other people in there with me. Um, I really hope that this project as a side effect can, can have the effect of pulling together more of the thinking for people have been doing this in the back end for so long 
And it's not that you haven't had stats on the front end side, but it's been very different. How would right? you characterize like you've got that? projects like right, like Crashlytics. You've got projects like Firebase. You've you got guys... projects like the one that uh, Fabric, right? So oh like, yeah. How yeah. would you characterize the difference in approach between those and and like what we're doing? You know, I look at the the, the back end side of that is definitely more mature than the front end side, but I just see people reinventing the wheel over and over again. And to me, the really exciting thing about something like Open Telemetry is that we can help get framework authors to start standardizing. Like if we can say, we all want to collect this data this way, can you send it to us this way? Then every framework author out there can go, this is the shape that I can make my errors, this is the shape that I can make my hooks for, you know, adding context, that kind of thing. And like that's the world I want to live in for sure. So then if it's in the framework, then every developer just starts doing this by default. It's like it's so easy for them. They're just doing errors like normal. Yeah, because we do so you know, we jump through so many hoops to try and auto instrument all these different frameworks and like the way that Context works in each one is different. The way that errors are propagated in each one is different. And even just people thinking about the problem of how do I get events out of this that mean something about what my app is doing, if everyone just thought about that and then had the same example code to look at for how someone had done it before them, we would be in such a better place. Yeah, then you would be supporting everyone by default, right? I do feel like we're like in a time of convergence or, or about to be finally. And there's been like letting a thousand flowers blossom and like, you know, and like, like a new like category springs up every, every night. It feels like there's APM, there's tracing, there's like monitoring and metrics and there's like logging and there's like all the front end, like whatever's and. And like I feel like we've reached a point where everybody, every one of these vendors, by the way, wants the same amount, large amount of money from you. And I believe that everyone should pay approximately 10 to 30% of their infra bill should go to observability. But that's in total, right? And all these vendors are like, well, we should get 10% of your bill. And like you add that up and it's like 300% of your bill. And I feel like the fragmentation is so costly for teams when you have to like use a human to copy paste an ID from, you know, this system to that system to get a trace. Or if you're trying to go from like, you know, you've got your dashboards and then you have but all you care about is one user, so then you have to copy over to a log and do a search. You know, it's just the hopping from system to system to system and being asked to pay to store this data, it's expensive all around. And I think that you're starting to see a lot of people like pushing back on this from a cost perspective. I think that we're seeing the ops teams are no longer to sit in the middle. They're no longer willing to sit in the middle and like translate for everybody what graphs mean for their code. And my hope is that in a few years we'll just have an observability category and everyone will be reading from the same view of reality. Do you have an idea of like how it'll converge, like how these many different like silos will come to be unsiloed? Or well, is that I think still- that it starts with the people who are writing code, who are like actively in kind of conversation with it while they're developing. You know, because as you're as you're shipping it, one thing that I think three years ago it was not widely agreed upon that software engineers should all be on call. It was not. Like, I got so many people angry at me every, every time I talked about this. And now I feel like that... that because the was, argument was, I'm not an ops person. Well, you yeah, should be on call. Like, well, I'm a developer. I just write the code. You yeah, operate it. Yeah, because they're like, I don't know how to operate it. I'm just going to get woken up all the time. And like my, my brain is too special. Like I should not be woken up ever to support I'm my I'm sure that's exactly what they said, Charity. Kind of. Kind <laughs> of is. It's the difference between the nice thing that people say and the subtext. (laughs) Yeah, and and like a lot of people just like, you know, keep it away from me. But like this is the only way that we can build systems for users that are highly available. You know, it, it just is. You have to have the original intent in your head and you have to carry it all the way out to watch the users interact with it. It's so weird seeing the 
kind of metrics that people falsely developed in the world of Knox, right? People were saying, you know what, it's a bad thing that this team has a, you know, 80 or 90% escalation rate where they can't solve the issue 80 or 90% of the time. It's like, on one hand, you know, maybe you shouldn't have that layer of indirection. On the other hand, do you mean the status quo before where they were solving the 90% of tickets by doing them rote by hand? Do you think mm-hmm. that that was a good thing, right? I they've, say they've, no, right? They've gotten it down to just the real problems. Right, so exactly, like, right? Like if you've gotten yourself to where it's just the real problems, then you, right, like that's that's a step towards you should just own it yourself, right? And if it's not the case and you haven't gotten it down to just unique problems and you still are having these like repetitive things that require yeah. manual glue, that's not a success criterion yeah. for your knock. That's a failure condition where you're pushing this work onto other people. Right. The services should not be flappy. They should not be down all the time. They should not be expensive to maintain. And the only way that you get to that promised land is if the people who are writing this, the systems, who have it in their head, are empowered to fix the systems and they actually look at the systems. You know, you can't break this up. You can't break up writing and fixing. So, all right, I feel like I should push back. Like, y'all are team ops. Good for you. I'm really happy for you. I'm team dev. And here's what I would say. Like, it's not my brain is too special. It's that I'm not allowed to, like, I am now. But, like, I wasn't allowed to play with the tools, right? So, like, so saying, like, so you write code, you give it to me, I do things with it, and then you're not allowed to touch yeah. it at that point. That's so terrible. like, so in that case, if it's like, Rachel, now you're on call, but you can't use any of these tools that I, I built, then like, I definitely would push back. And yes. it, like, and that is not the case anymore. I yes. definitely live in a better world where like, I get to play with all the well, tools, it, but yeah. that's where it's coming right, like, from. That's about the divides. That's They're, about the divides. And you know, it's some, some of it is devs saying, oh, I'm too good to do this. But others of this is the ops people who perceive themselves as the keeper of the knowledge. They are gatekeepers. Like yeah. and they see it like there there's like a strong sense of this is what makes me special. Sorry. Yes. So you so, right. so if you're make, if you're making fun of like Dev saying my brand's too special, I will make fun of ops people saying Absolutely like my deserved. tools are too special, you can't touch Absolutely them. Absolutely deserved. Absolutely yep. deserved. And I think that not, we have to move to this world where it is safe to experiment with production. It's yes. safe to touch production so that you don't okay have to, to live in fear. Yeah. It's okay to fail, yeah. right? We have to we have to have less fear of production. We've built a glass castle and we need a playground. Hmm. Right? We need to be not focusing on make it so it never breaks. We need to be focusing on how many things can we let break before users ever notice or before anyone has to get paged in the middle of the night? How many things can we let break and it be fine until somebody wakes up in the morning and re- resets it to a good state? I feel like serverless is great for that. Super is. I feel I feel like in the case of serverless, a lot of it's like it will go down and it will come right back yes. up and you'll have no idea. Exactly. It's managed, like someone might get woken up, but it won't be you. Yes. So I feel like this is the second coming of, of DevOps, right? And the first coming of DevOps was all, ops people must learn to write code, rawr, you know, and, and like message received, right? And now for the for the past couple of years, I feel like the pendulum has swung back. And now it's like, okay, software engineers, like it's time to learn to operate your services and to build operable services because those go hand in hand. And we've made it easier. So it's not, you know. And we've you made know. it easier. And instead of being the ops profession, instead of being the gatekeepers, we are specialists who are consultants. We are here to help support you as you learn to do this better. And a lot of devs didn't want to be on call for very good reasons, which were that ops people have a long history of masochism, of Mm. just like abusing themselves to death. And what I want to say is we're not trying to invite you to this terrible land of abuse. We're trying to genuinely make it better for everyone so that nobody has to be abused. And that means that the people who have original intent 
you know, we have to support them and getting all the way to the end because that's how we get that, that virtuous feedback cycle up and running, right? So that, you know, problems are actually getting fixed and they don't recur instead of just slapping Band-Aid on top of Band-Aid. So Rachel, you mentioned that you're in a better place now. What changed? Like what, what was different? Was it that the culture was different when you came in or did you change the culture? So when I started working at GitHub was the first time that I was required to be on call for the services that I was writing, for the features that I was writing. And that was that was a great experience. Like the, the tooling was at a place where I could use it. I was automatically given all the credentials to use it. Mm-hmm. Like you sign in and you get the credentials. That's a that was like a weird thing mm-hmm. at the place I worked before where here's the tool. So I clicked through to the tool. Oh, I I can't sign in. Well, you're still responsible for operating. Oh, that, that's fun. So I don't think that I was the change maker. I feel like I changed jobs mm-hmm. and and the like the tooling was at a place where the and also the culture was at a place. How can we learn which companies have good cultures of supporting their devs and which ones don't? What a question. I don't know. Like, uh, so no one is better in the world than asking upsetting questions during the interview process and making it look good. So, <laughs> Rachel, you should just tell us your your tricks and techniques for <laughs> finding out all the dirty secrets before you get in the door. I do, uh, like asking awkward questions in the interview. I feel like you'll just go for it. That's the thing. Where you're like, are your developers on call? How awful is that for them? Like, how often do they get paged? When was the last time a developer cried in front of you? I feel like you <laughs> have just a wonderful way of pulling that off that other people can't. It's because it's because I have long and they think I'm innocent when I'm not. I'm not innocent at all. I don't know. Doesn't that work for y'all? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, you just sm- not you, for me. You, you have the long hair. <laughs> you giggle, and that's how you get away with a lot of things. I just said that. Yes. I know. It's it's, it's so true. Uh, people see you as more innocent. Um, let's see. How do you find out before you get into a place what it's like? I think that like you can ask questions. That's one thing. I think it's fair to ask them about their tooling. I f- mm-hmm. like ask them about. Okay, if you say like, how often are you woken up? They will lie to you. I like I don't feel like that's a reliable question that you could ask. What happened but like, the last time you were paged? How long was it to resolve it? Did you have to ask for help? Is it okay to ask for help? What happened the last time you had to ask for help? Yeah, yeah, because like that's a hard one to lie about. Yeah, yeah. I think asking about like what the tooling is, and then maybe asking to see it if they can na- if they yeah. can go right to it and they can navigate to it. If they can like click around and show you things, then that means that they're using it on a regular base. Do you get the credentials that you need to do your job? Are there different levels of access for opt and dev? And Mm, I love that question of like, take me on a tour of your tooling. I love that. That's amazing. I imagine that there's probably some places where it's their own, and you would have there would be like another NDA situation there. But like, if they if they will show you, I would ask to see. Sure. Even if they can't show you the live tool, right? Like it's kind of like diagram me for me on the whiteboard. What does your investigative process look like, right? Where does it hurt when? <laughs> yeah, in the case of Google, all of the tools are homegrown, right? Like yep. we, we made Live all the tools, life. and like one of the things that's great about that is that people can describe here's this tool and here's what it does, and then here's this other tool and here's how they relate to each mm-hmm. other. So if someone can like outline for you what all of the tools are and what they're all doing, then maybe they can't show it to me, but they could like describe for yeah. me what it's Yeah, like. and the thing that I certainly found during my time was once you learned the tools once, sure, it took you six months, but after that, you could switch teams every 10 to yeah. ten to 18 months and yeah. be perfectly fine. You'd spin up within a month and you'd be good. Another right. question that I really like is, do the managers track how often people get paged or woken mm. up? Because if nobody's tracking, then they don't care. Yeah, that's a great question. I would also like... The thing I've heard about Etsy is they had a graph of 
how often people were getting woken up. And if you got woken up, they would automatically, it would readjust the on-call schedule so you could go to sleep, oh, so you could sleep nice. a little bit more. What I would always how do at is Paris that? is I took myself out of the on-call rotation as a manager so that anytime someone got woken up, I'd, just, I'd take it the next night so that they could sleep. Because that helped me stay in practice, you know, and be hands-on too. Yeah, I think that 24-hour on-call is one of the worst things that we inflict upon our engineers. Like, break it up. Like, seriously, yeah. break it up so you it can't depends. be woken up at 3 a.m. and then at 8 a.m. and then, right, like... It's it's doable for a while. Not at Google scale, for sure. Just to be clear, no one is responsible for all of Google. There's no one person that's responsible for all of that. <laughs> You're breaking my brain right now. Well, there's an interesting group of about two dozen people who are the defenders of last resort. Oh, wait, can... Wait, is this something you're allowed to talk about? Can you tell us about the Defenders of Last Resort? I can say a little bit about it. I served on an on-call rotation that was kind of the, if like multiple things at Google are all broken, you page this team. And yeah. they don't fix it hands-on, but they coordinate the response. Yeah. They know mm. enough of the pieces of system that they can kind of fit it into their heads and reason about it. Yeah, like fit all of the, not all every detail, but like enough of the moving pieces that you can say, wake up this person, wake up that person, get them talking to each other. Right, like this this kind of higher so level much incident. A, it's, it's as much a human problem yeah. as oh, yeah. it is. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It is. So that last question you asked, though, was about how will this convergence take place? Mm. And that's when I went into like, well, software engineers have to be on call. Because I think that's where it starts. But I think that um, the next step of it is, so if you've got your software engineers on call and you've stabilized to a place where it's not terrible, I think that there's a lot of power to be unlocked by having everyone speak a common language. You know, tools create silos. Like the border of your tool is the border of your silo, right? And so you, right now you've got all these engineering teams who have radically different views of the universe, of, of reality. And often when you're trying to solve a problem together, you spend more time arguing about the nature of reality than you do solving the problem. And I feel like there's a lot of value to consolidation because if you can have all these teams share a single view of reality, then you can start creating entry points for engineering adjacent teams, your support teams, your product managers, your people who don't write code, but they are like elbow deep in in it, in your production systems every day, like for support teams, instead of just being like escalate, triage, you know, dumbly or whatever, be like, okay, I'm going to create a view for you with like five questions so that you can put in the user ID, verify that it's actually happening, see if it falls into like one of half a dozen problems that we've already triaged, we've got fixes in it coming for them. Maybe the advanced ones futz with it a little bit more, see if you can figure out something before, before right. support you escalate automation. it. support automation. It's absolutely support, support automation. automation. But this is so much about enhancing the humans, right? It's not about AI. It's not about ML. It's not about taking the humans out of the way. It's about letting the machines do what they do best, crunch a lot of numbers, to support the human who's using their creative human brain to actually like solve problems. Well, that was a super great conversation. Thank you both for being on the show. I had a great time. Thanks for having me. This was part of my job. I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for coming, guys. (laughs) Thanks for joining us for this conversation. If you're interested in being a guest on a future show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. That's O-1-1-Y-Cast. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit HeavyBit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tool companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time.